Louis, thank you. Thank you for coming in. <laughs> you have a great background. You've done it all. And we just had a bit of a conversation beforehand and you talk about coding. <laughs> yes. You're using these uh, almost like workstation laptops and things like that. So, and uh, we had a little bit of an interesting conversation, you know, of, of different manufacturers go to, but your background is just tremendous. And I, you know, the audience is going to love it. So thank you for coming in and sharing your experiences with our audience. Thank you for the invitation. I appreciate it. So, Louis, you know, you, you got this background, you've done everything, um, but there must have been inflection points in your life. Let's say when you were two or three, maybe it was uh, in your early school days, could have been university, early career, something. What are those major change points that created this wonderful person you are today with this amazing background? Well, um, so I guess one of the first inflection points is I, I was I was born in Mexico, actually, so I uh, was in school. I was from a lower middle class, I would say, family. So even learning English wasn't something that we focused on, to be very frank. And early schooling, I, I, I showed potential. So I, I you know, started in school two or three years ahead of everyone. And I applied for a scholarship to go to Canada. This was one of those scholarships with the, the, the with a with a particular um, boarding school in Souk, Victoria, right, uh, in Vancouver Island. And I got the the award for my high school. So I moved to Canada when I was in high school, around uh, 14 years old. And I uh, the discovery of how, you know, studying and learning open borders for you, open opportunities that I didn't think I was going to have, became uh, something that became an early onset, right? So I... I finished my schooling in Canada and I went for computer science really because I didn't know what I wanted to study. I, I wanted to study music. Actually, I was, I was very into guitar at the time. And uh, I used to hack people's emails uh, for a fee as part of a side gig while I was in, in college. This is back in Vancouver, in Vancouver College. And I realized I was pretty good at it. So I figured I'll continue studying computer science. And then the biggest inflection point came in my last year of schooling where I, I was doing business major and computer science at the same time at University of Victoria that opened my eyes to first Asia, right? And I, I went to Chinese University of Hong Kong as an exchange, but also that they were infrastructure-based thinking, the, the, the foundation of economies where you can have the most impact on people. So in my first co-op before I graduated, I did basically an, an, an internship with uh, back then Anderson Consulting, which was coding and uh, oil and gas company. And that set the tone for me, to be fair. I I figure if I was going to do something that was going to be impactful, the energy industry would probably be one of the best places to do it because you impact the most humans in the world with it. And software was something that was going to revolutionize the way we thought of technology altogether. So it was it was a, a really early onset setup going into power and in that time computer science and eventually became software engineering um, and really do implementations of software key critical operational software or also enterprise based software um, in the industry and you know from then on uh, eleven countries <laughs> uh, and twenty five years later I'm still trying to put software into energy companies uh, at the end. It, it became eventually artificial intelligence, obviously, because of, the, of how things evolved. But the, the theme was set up really early. It's like try to have an impact, try to learn as much as you can so they don't send you back to Mexico and um, and continue to learn to to be able to try to create an impact for everybody. You know, that's really fascinating. So you're, you, uh, you know, you're raised in Mexico and then you, you get this opportunity or this opening to uh, go to um uh, British Columbia, and you end up at the University of Victoria. And you know, when I saw that in your bio, I was thinking, "Oh, you must be Australian." <laughs> no, 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 no. Uvic, Vancouver Island. And to be fair, Vancouver Island, I had two scholarship offers. So, so one of the key things was I didn't really have enough money to study, so I needed a scholarship. And I had two scholarship offers, but one of them, which was the one with the highest percentage, which was a really important aspect of it. Uh, allowed me to do an exchange uh, because they had already embedded in the early 90s the idea of going elsewhere to be able to graduate. 
and I thought that was fascinating. And this was Yubik. He was it was an early visionary of that kind of working uh, semesters and do them abroad. Right. So that's why I picked him. Yeah. You know, that's really fascinating because I, I'm actually Canadian and I know one of the um, profs at the University of Victoria. Uh, Housie Mueller is one. Uh, he's a, yeah. he, so you know Housie. I've I've heard of him. Yeah, I, I, he didn't didn't teach me. I, I wasn't part of his classes, but I know I know of the faculty. Yeah, yeah, and and he's you know embedded into the IEEE and he runs conferences and things like that. He's the chair this year, uh, the IEEE Quantum Week, which is gone. It's over now, but uh, it's an amazing guy. And and my nephew <laughs> went to the University of Victoria and studied software engineering. So so. <laughs> We have these common roots, but here you get the scholarship offer. Uh, was language a barrier at all, or you were multilingual? At first, it was. Uh, I had to pretty much learn Span uh, English from Spanish within eight months. From uh, the, for the competition itself uh, of the test, uh, I had to do like six months worth of English. But good thing there wasn't an essay into the competition. <laughs> it was mostly math and science, right? Um, and they gave us some time before we moved in. But yeah, when I arrived in high school, my first year of high school, I probably understood 70% of what the teachers were saying. But I was lucky enough that there was classes in French. And actually, because my first language was Spanish, I I ended up learning French faster than, than English. So I was I was able to navigate. And they were they were very aware because we have kids from all over the world. They they brought in kids kids from 20 different countries. So they were very accommodating. And this one thing that I loved about Canada, it was, it was you could be Canadian and be from somewhere else. And they were very uh, empathetic to people trying to to move from another place into Canada and trying to do uh, or build their career there. Right? You know, but it's still, I mean, it's really impressive because that's a cognitive load. <laughs> because, oh, <it> was. <laughs> right? Because uh, you're, you're being taught in English and then you're going to have to, or you know, do translations in your head or into yeah. whether it's French or English or things. But like I think it actually helped my math <laughs> because yeah, there's no language in math, right? Numbers yeah, are numbers. So as long as you understand what's there, even if you can't express it, you understand what the formula is, right? So yeah, there, there's uh, definitely a relationship somewhere. And then you end up with a postgraduate degree in software engineering, right? And from Hong Kong, right? right? So Chinese University of Hong Kong. Yeah, this is in the 90s. And I, uh, I, after doing a few implementations of of software at the time, I was working with SAP, right? Y2K, so SAP was the the thing to implement everywhere, right? Um, I uh, end up developing a, a fascination for uh, more um, <laughs> an, an approach that was more data rich. Uh, I was in BC Hydro at the time. We were doing a smart meter program back in 2010, 2009. I was one of the architects of this uh, the smart meter program. And we, in collaboration with the University of British Columbia, we did a, a little study on uh, grow-ups. Remember marijuana grow-ups at the time before it was legal? How would you be able to define where the grow-ups were based on energy consumption, right? It was a very simple project. It was simple regression we built. Um, and we it, it was fascinating to just see how how much more can, can data tell us about people in the conservation part. And it became a, a staple of energy conservation programs of BC Hydro. So that was when I first dabbled into data science and eventually became a, a passion of mine and even doing a postgraduate work after um, after you know leaving GE here in Asia. So we used to work with a Canadian company called Element AI. I was the head of Element AI here in Asia. And you know it was it's a fascinating journey of discovering the birth of deep learning and then how that all you know revolutionize the way we were thinking of systems right well because i'm bc based i can relate to bc hydro in fact that's what's powering my equipment yeah talking <laughs> here right now and, and I, in fact i had an uncle uh who who worked for bc hydro and some of my aunts worked for bc hydro and and um one of my one of my uncles uh, who became a lawyer he, he used to work at night shifts and things uh doing stuff so i i could see all these sort of commonalities, it's really fascinating. And then, then you talk about doing postgraduate work, machine and deep learning, data science, Internet of Things, smart manufacturing, did that at MIT. And then and then you talk about Element AI, and I and I know those Mila folks, right? So Yeah, that's uh, I was under, gladly instructed by Joshua Benjo for three years, um, right. mostly inspired by him because, because the way that he saw the world and the development of AI was 
fascinating, especially when you compare to to Jeffrey Hinton and and John LeCun, right? It was it was very altruistic, very human focused, and that was fascinating, right? So yeah, yeah, I'm, 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 I have a little piece of Montreal in my heart, even though I lived in Asia for ten years because I've been continuing the collaboration. Even today, ADI has a partnership with Mila because of of uh, of my relationships, trying to drive a bit more lateral thinking beyond what we know here in Asia, right? So we we lean on Canada for for a bit more of a of a lateral thinking, that's it. Yeah, and just for the audience sake, just a little bit of history. I mean, Joshua Benjo, Jeffrey Hitton, and Jan LeCun run the uh, ACM Touring Award. Touring and Award. Yeah. One of the audiences for this interview is this ACM. So, and and uh, Joshua, he made Montreal famous, right? The the uh, uh, Millet Institute. I mean, he, he made it famous, and of course, uh, Jeffrey's at Jeffrey Hinton's at the University of Toronto. And it's the Canadian government that actually during the AI winter kind of kept funding. Yes, in math, yeah. yeah, and, and near Ips, uh, or what's called near Ips now, but that was held in Canada <laughs> yeah. for many, many years, right? So, oh, it was a Vancouver thing. Since <laughs> the, I, I started going to near Ips before NIPS. I used to go there in 90, I don't know, 2001, 2002, I think is when it started. I don't remember anymore when it started, but. We started going there early. Right? It was, it was a topic that was at the time fascinating for quite a few geeks. But we didn't really believe that was going to change the world. To be very frank, it was just, uh, I would say, cognitive jujitsu in a way. You know, everybody had great ideas, and we were all like, we didn't know when when you know the fantasy kicked in and and the reality was the set, right? But I believe that competition out of um, uh, the ImageNet competition is where I opened everybody's eyes, right? That 2014 Jeffrey Hinton uh, paper and what, what demonstrated the fact that you could actually have the first form of convolutional neural networks, uh, be able to learn from data on relatively unassisted, right? Or at least not necessarily guided by human learning is this when everybody opened their eyes like, oh crap, this stuff is actually possible now, right? So it was it was fascinating. It was, it, being a Canadian the early year, part of 2014 and being adjacent, not even in, but adjacent or a fan of AI was a fascinating position to be in because we were really opening the eyes to the world of what eventually became deep learning, right? Yeah, and, and just, uh, you know, Google Brain was founded at that time. Andrew Ng right. did work uh, right. with those folks. Um, Ilya Siskova, who's, you know, part of OpenAI and all the work he's done. OpenAI, yeah, 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 that's right. It's all part of that amazing time and you were in there right i was in the uh, yeah i would say look i my role was to facilitate uh, when lmni was fundraising there were significant interests from asia and i was based out of singapore and because of my background in computer science I, I kept a lot of relationships in canada who happened to now be working with joshua uh in in montreal and my role was at first just to help advise them on how do you talk to, in this case, GIC was through through uh, a collective. Um, they had uh, one 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 source of funding coming from the Singapore government, to be fair. And then Korea was a really big thing. And after the everything settled and they were actually moving forward, we had to open Asia because a lot of the funding came from Asia. So I was I was a, a, a you say a first row spectator because I wasn't really sitting in Montreal with through this whole thing, but I was trying to bring the world to Montreal based on what we were finding and what we were trying to define at the time, right? Some some better done than others, but overall the, the attention of the world came because also Korea was one of the earliest countries to realize they needed to invest this, in this early. Uh, this was 2017 where they said, we're all in, right? And and we were lucky enough to be able to bring that into Montreal at the time. So you know, you 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 talk about this um, Asian, um, you know, working in Singapore and things like that. You talked about uh, you know being managing director of Element AI in Asia, and and it's because you had this connection. You you were uh, and you alluded to this, but you're vice president, chief uh, customer success. Uh, uh, leader at GE Digital, right? Responsible for it. Right. Can you talk yeah. a little more about that GE work? Ah, sure. So um, I, I did implementations for close to, I would say, 15, 16 years all over the place, right all over the world. And, and eventually I landed in Singapore. I was 
running uh, energy and resources for SAP in Singapore and for, for Asia. And at the time, GE was very aggressive towards building the Predix platform, right? And and defining basically what the next, what they used to call digital industrial solutions was going to be. Funny enough, because of the work that I was doing back in 2010 with GE, uh, with BC Hydro, there was a company called Wise.io, which was from, from Vancouver, uh, or at least had a, a portion of it in Vancouver. Uh, and and WorldTech, which was uh, also a Vancouver-based company that did cybersecurity. And what GE Digital did is they acquired these companies as part of the base of the of the Predix platform. So they reached out to me because I was early work on that as well, and said, "Do you can you help us be one of the leaders of the Predix platform in Asia?" Because I was familiar with the technology that went into it, and I end up uh, driving that idea of AI into the industrial space early on with GE, moved away from SAP to try to, you know, the way I conceptualize it is the world is going to be a lot more about data, less about coding, right? And then you needed to go towards where industrials were going to, you know, show leadership towards getting into data-centric environments. And and GE was at the time very committed into it. They they dropped $1.2 billion into GE Digital. Um, so my role was to basically lead Asia for that. And after about three years of it, uh, a little less, um, I, I moved into the implementation side because I was familiar with technology and I, I, I figured the best way to talk about this, even if you want to go to sales, is to actually know how this actually works. Um, the reality was that the base model of how GE makes money was in the way. So it wasn't really the technology that failed, although there's a lot of, in retrospect, there's a lot of things we could have done better. It was the business model that didn't give a chance to succeed. And I figured that if I was going to learn about adapting business models to technology that we didn't know what it could do, you needed to jump into the startup world. And I left after you know 20 years in, in, in huge institutions, I left for a startup, which was Element AI. The idea was learn about adaptability through, a, through being in a startup. And you know we went from a 380,000 company, people company to 150 people company in, in that jump. And it was fascinating because you realize what big companies are missing when it comes to the ability to have strategic optionality, right? But at the same time, you realize how how important it is to have some form of institution supporting you, right, uh, as a startup. So it was a, a really trial by fire learning. Um, and yeah, and that's that's why uh, at the end, the my career was shaped by the times, right? As as we try to continue with incumbent innovating itself, the reality was that the only way to truly innovate an industry like power required really startup like mentality, and we're seeing that now today, right? Okay, so. Uh, now I can see the progression, right, from GE to Element AI, and you, you gave the reasons why, and and Element AI got acquired, I believe, right? For correct, it was sold to ServiceNow. Yeah, yeah, about two hundred seventy million or something like that, right? So just break, just broke even. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the money in, uh, money out, right? Uh, um, and then what did you do after that? Well, after that, I went into a bit of a. See, originally I wanted just to take some time off. I, it's been a, a, a head spinning right for me and my wife. Uh, and pandemic hit around the same time because it was uh, 2020 and late 2020, 2021 when, when the acquisition was completed. I ended up dabbling a bit more into social media because at the end, I, I wanted data. I was looking for more data. That was uh, the biggest problem there. So I, I ended up helping a social media company that was doing economic communities, uh, I really dive more into research, and then we were planning mid through the pandemic. We were planning the the inception of a Boitiz at Innovations, which was supposed to be an industrial solutions or industrial digital solutions company, which meant take a conglomerate, an industrial conglomerate, and set up a data company that connects the data across the conglomerate and generate algorithms based on developing them on their own backyard. Right. So in in that alleged break, I try to teach, I try to relax. And instead, I and we ended up going after one more startup with with David Cardoon in this case. And and in principle, I think we found a path of 
trying to do again where we were really committed to do it, but perhaps in a better setup, right? Because from that point, I realized that GE was a great vessel, but the wrong place to try to innovate some of this work, right? And Element AI was a great vessel, but also perhaps not necessarily set up for arriving at you know industry solutions because you can't forget about the domain either, right? So it was it's kind of think of a pendulum, right? I went from extreme power centric with very little competence on the internet artificial intelligence side to the swing of full on artificial intelligence with very little ground on reality, right? And try to find somewhere in the middle that 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 could perhaps you know have a good chance to succeed. So now you're at ADI. So can for the audience, can you pronounce the name of your company? And because that's a sure. conglomerate, right? So it's a conglomerate. Get a little bit of um, a context of the company, and then and um, you can then talk about what you do with the company and what you hope to do, and so on. So first of all, for the audience, name the company, and we'll use <laughs> so the ADI after that. <laughs> yeah, sure. The company is called Aboitis Data Innovations. Um, for your audience, Aboitis is a, is a group in the Philippines. It's probably the third largest conglomerate in the Philippines. They have power, food construction, infrastructure. They pretty much build cities from scratch. They locate the land. They do the construction. They do the streets. They can do an airport. And then from there, they have power systems. And they're the, the largest independent power producer in the Philippines. Um, interestingly enough, uh, ADI, or Aboitis Innovations, it's a Singaporean company. It's it's not a Filipino company. We opened it in Singapore to try to make the point that if you connect the data across, imagine that you have the data across the entire city, including its power systems, that you could actually incubate solutions for the entire conglomerate and and effectively have a certain amount of, you know, you can transpose them into other potential markets as well as in other potential industries because you're doing it incubated within one function in industry, within one function in conglomerate. So it's like, a, think of a, a digital startup for a conglomerate. That That's perhaps the best way to absorb what ADI is. Mm -hmm. Right, but it combines the best development AI because you can focus on AI, but you also have the enterprise aspect because you have all these companies that are this uh, conglomerate, right? Including bank, you got a bank as well, I believe. Oh, there's a bank there too. So so for context also, Southeast Asia is very conglomerate driven. And in fact, Asia altogether. So the tradition of Keidetsu's in Japan, you have Mitsui, you have you know uh, the, the, the big Marubeni, right? Big companies that have pretty much their hands on everything. Same, you know, everybody's familiar with Samsung, LG, right? The big Chaibos in Korea. Well, in Southeast Asia, we have them too. And and this company has a bank, you know, has food, has infrastructure, has construction, has uh, power, right? And, and in, in their way they set up, they're nation-building companies. Uh, that's after the war and after colonial, colonial uh, Southeast Asia, that's how they set up the, the economic growth of, of Southeast Asia altogether. So you end up having this 20 companies that run probably about half of the economy across Asia. Uh, at least in, in non non China, right, the Southeast Asia and North Asia, um, and hence the the opportunity that it presents from a data perspective is that you have the interconnectivity of of how things actually work or how how much they depend on each other to be able to function. So we thought that that has a real good potential for building better data sets and and providing a bit more reality between the hypothetical data science that you could be building, you know, the algorithmic focus versus the application need, which is you, you need it to work and you need it to work under harsh conditions. That's where we like the Philippines because it's a great Petri dish. It has all the right problems to develop solutions, right? You, you don't develop innovation from playing Legos in your backyard. You play, you develop it based on having real pains that you have to solve for it with no option to, to, to step out of it, right? So in the case of the Philippines, they're naturally distributed. Uh, they have a growing population. They have real bottleneck in Manila, right? And they need more power and they need it cheaper because they pay the second highest kilowatt hour of Asia. So in that sense, you have the right level of constraints, the right problems to try to develop solutions that are not too hypothetical on the algorithmic side, but not too uh, conservative on the business side, right? So this is, this is how we set it up to try to uh, give ourselves a better shot at coming up with something in between. So you're the uh, ADI chief operating officer for power, right? Correct. And then you're the um, of its power chief data officer. 
What's right. the difference? That, that's why I have those two, exactly. So I, from as my position of ADI uh, COO, I try to come up with data, data science solutions or you know algorithmic driven solutions. But at the same time, I have a responsibility within the power group to do things that actually work, right? And and half of my time is, has this worked yet? Has this actually delivered value yet? And in a very agnostic way, not even algorithmic way, you know, bottom line, how does this affect, right? So that that's how the pendulum swings, right? For one side, we try to be innovative, but from the other side, you have to be, you have to hit the bottom line. And, and Aboiti's Power on top of that is a, is a publicly traded company. So we have very little wiggle room for, for failure, even though there's a certain awareness on experimentation, they still expect their money back one way or the other for stakeholders, right? So that's why I have those two roles. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's by design to try to make sure to keep ourselves grounded between how we build solutions versus how we deploy them, right? Wow, because you're a public company too. <laughs> they are. Oh, Which the earnings per share hits us every quarter. Yeah, no, and... To be fair, sometimes it makes my life uh, a living hell in that sense. Because uh, here I am thinking like, this is really going to work, guys. Yeah, but what's the bottom line? And we don't have an IRR for it. And what's the MPV of it, right? And when you throw that into AI, a lot of your listeners will be aware of this. It's like, it's, it's just very hard to evaluate uh, any learning technology based on those terms. So what I, we've learned so far is that you shouldn't evaluate the technology only. It's kind of like... Imagine that you want to be a tennis player and you go to the store and you say, give me a racket. And how is this racket going to help me win tournaments? Well, that's already a, 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 a failed proposition, isn't it? The racket doesn't help you win anything, right? It's, it's, the, it's what you do with it that matters. So we end up having to focus a lot more on, on adoption and, and transformation um, by default, right? aided by technology rather than a technology-centric conversation. So that makes me a very different kind of chief data officer because I, I don't have the luxury to talk about data that much. I have to talk about outcomes from data. Right. Yeah, and Marion with the sort of CEO position, and uh, God, uh, I mean, that's that's really interesting because you got operational <laughs> responsibility, right? Uh, and to be fair, at some point, I think we will have to redefine it because I need to have more sleep. But in <laughs> principle, it, it it forces the right, like I said, it forces the right constraints. It, it puts the right guardrails so that for one side, you can continue to be innovative. But from the other side, you continue to be responsible for impact. Right? And in, in the industry of energy, that's I don't think there's a choice. We, we have to do it this way. Yeah, I mean, you, you got to focus on the practicality of it. So it can't be just all dreamscape, right? So, so so can you give me some use cases now on operational efficiency, revenue generation, risk management, <laughs> and ESG initiatives? So there's a lot there. <laughs> there's can a lot give there. Me some examples of how you're able to marry the operational side with kind of the dreaming data science side as well. So I'll use an example on ESG, which is, you know, particularly popular right now. Um we have our ESG targets. So Philippines is supposed to reach 50-50. That means 50% coal-based, 50% non-coal-based by 2030. This is very aggressive. It's the most aggressive of Southeast Asia. Partially, too, is because Philippines already has a very big implementation of renewables, right? Um, and to do that, in current, if you see it from the outside, most people talk about one technology. Hydrogen is going to get us there. Um Maybe renewables, maybe offshore wind, maybe solar gets us there. But in practicum, once you look into especially the data, you realize that none of the above gets you there. There's not one technology that's going to get you there. The only way to do it is if you hybridize, if you take a different paradigm to the way that you're creating generation. So that means you have to put battery storage with renewables with a smaller plant and you need to design the cities around the way that this is more sustainable so that you eliminate certain amount of CO2 because you're, you're no longer chasing the peaks and valleys with your coal power plant. But at the same time, so you're improving the ability of people to be self-sustainable, at least on the residential side. And then you focus more on how would you address the, the, the separation of the demand from the inter industrial side, for example, in, in a way that is more self-sustained. So the hybridization of grids is something that we don't talk about enough, 
But the reality is that it's, it's the first step because you need to make them first more efficient because we lose a lot of energy in trying to distribute energy. And second, the brokerage between what should kick in when it's really a data science necessity, right? If you have energy here and you have demand here, you need to be able to broke and peer-to-peer and -peer share or or use energy storage to respond first rather than you know put all the strain on one power plant. And that is actually the better way to think of energy um, conservation and eventually transition into other forms of energy because only until you understand well how the supply and demand works and the brokerage between it, can you put the right hybrid protection so that you're not depending on one source of electricity only, right? And I think that when you look at data, that is actually a much more pragmatic way to think about it. And and, and unfortunately, in the in in the world right now, we're a bit more romantic about it. You know, it needs to be zero zero carbon, which needs to be solar. But if you only look at solar, you're never going to create something that's sustainable economically, right? Or to that sense, stability from a power side. And, and I think those kinds of use cases educate us about what's practical versus what's uh, uh, utopic in, in, in trying to move us away from, from carbon uh, fuels, right? So that's, that's an example. We look like the brokerage and, and hybridization of grids as an example. Right. So you must have a lot of sensors out there and, and you're monitoring yeah. all the data and, and you're uh, ingesting it and looking at it and... We're, we're putting the pilot, for example, where we use energy storage, so batteries, also as sensors, right? So they, they convert into an IoT and battery capability. And the way we think of batteries normally is you put, let's say, 50 megawatts in some place, right? Just like it was another power plant. But if you break that paradigm, you realize that batteries are probably better all distributed, where you put a battery every mile or every two miles, right, of grid. And, and basically what you create is an ability to respond as a mesh generation almost. But in order to be able to do that, you need to have some form of intelligence brokerage on using operations research, right? The ability to put all that into an intelligent brokerage capability. If we only think of the technology, we never think of the algorithms behind it, right? And if we only think of algorithms, then we think preventive maintenance of individual equipment. But when we hybridize, then we can fear better options for the way that we can distribute this work or distribute this grid generation demands. And the other thing that was very interesting on this concept is that we also need to re-educate the people, right? And this is where the, some of that social media proven work is, is really fascinating because we grew up in a generation that power was a right. Touch the button, power's there, always affordable, always ready, right? An entire generation of the world thinks of power that way. But in the future, power is going to have to be earned a bit more, not just a right to, to cheap power every time. You have to create a, a sense of understanding your role in keeping power available and reliable, which means you also need to facilitate people conserving power and, and reward them for it by charging them less or people not conserving power, charging them more, right? Meaning think of an airline, you never pay the same ticket price than your neighbor, right? No one does. We all pay a very different price. Imagine the world where power is treated that way and your behavior and how you use power is what drives what you pay and how you contribute the economic value that you have to help conserve uh, uh, energy and to help also bring down the, the spikes that make coal power plants a must, right? So that, that is another way that if you hybridize the thinking, you now come up with other potential solutions, right? Right. And I can relate to that because I get warnings sometimes saying you're on track to, uh, you know, you're you're halfway through the month and you're on track yeah. at your rate may double. Uh, or if you keep going this way, right, yeah. turn down your air conditioning for a bit. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly what we need to get to. And I make the argument in one of my classes that, look, we, we've already changed an entire generation sleeping patterns through TikTok. That's right. been the consequence, right? Young people now sleep differently than we did. And a lot of them have lost one or two hours of sleep every night to watching TikTok. And they all like to dance or at least show something that's a form of social conformity. If we apply these tools to change it for sustainability, right? We can definitely do mass behavioral change on the way we conserve power. We just now need to open our minds as to how that would work, right? Yeah, it kind of reminds me of, uh, I did an interview with the uh, founder, and he's the CEO of B-Box, and they mm -hmm. use these uh, solar 
battery storage devices that are community-based, but they have all sorts of analytics behind it too. So they can tell when something's going to go down. They can tell when somebody has a problem. And because now it's all digital, now they have a financial record, so which means they can have access to health resources, other financial resources. They can buy products because now they have some kind of a credit score. Right, uh, yeah. So are, are you doing things like that too or... We are. We in, in our case, in the Philippines, we have a huge problem with underbanked. What right. that means is people that have no access to financing at all. So we did a study on powered affordability, why people don't pay their bills, right? And we realized that there's a lot of communities where people don't necessarily live paycheck to paycheck. Sometimes they, the paycheck is not recurrent, right? It happens whenever they can. So it's not that they don't want to pay their bill, it's that their money comes in a non-stable form, right? By doing that, we created a new form of credit scoring, which was more based on behavior scoring, right? How do you pay your bill? When do you pay your bill? And we realized that a lot of people, if you give them an extra day or two, they'll self-curate. They, they will pay their bill. So you never want to disconnect those people. You just want to give them a break. Now, funny enough, there we found a correlation of people using loan sharks. Because they are poor and they're underbanked. They don't have access to, to bank financing. So instead they go to loan sharks that charge them 20% interest a month, meaning that they never get out of debt. So when we saw someone now having a problem on paying their bill, they're a great candidate to give them a, a, a micro loan and save them from the loan sharks, right? Because the micro loan only is 2% per month. So instead of 20%, it's a better position to be in, right? And and depends even on the bank, you could actually reduce that percentage. So what we now applied into is, as you have powered affordability behavior, we will help come up with new schemes for you to try to get out of debt, right? And, and if you think the psychology of someone that is just about to get their power disconnected, they fail to pay a lot of other things before they pay their electricity. Right. So if they're failing to pay their electricity, this means this person is really under stress. They, they need some help. Right. So in, in the context of the Philippines, that's a use case we developed. And we're currently in the process of trying to expand it across because it has great potential to help the underbank with, you know, payday loans for micro microfinancing, which is hard to come by in the Philippines. That's really, really fascinating. On the... Um... You know, there's an explosion in in uh, a large foundation models, right? I mean, uh, from about October, November last year, and you see this big upswing, and everybody's trying it. And you know, I I've done some moderating at some CEO conferences, and in fact, I just did an O'Reilly one, where I was the host for a a, um, a generative AI for government. So this is just constantly coming up, and. Uh, so what are your thoughts about that? What are your thoughts about large foundation models? And I'm using that as sort of an umbrella term mm. which includes fusion models, which are like, uh, you know, uh, Dolly 2, Dolly, uh, Dolly 3 came out. That's graphic. Dolly 3, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, um, GPT-5 patents have been filed. There's a thing called Gemini coming out from Google. And of course, Microsoft has really uh, gone 100% in, in essence, right? With all the co-pilots that they're, uh, regime that they're putting out to help to make you know, augment people. Right. What are your thoughts about what a lot of people call uh, generative AI or gen AI or or large language mm -hmm. models? But I'm using this term large foundation models as sort of an umbrella term. What What are your thoughts? On that? Are you trying it? Um, are you using open source? Uh, Uh, partnering with the Asia Development Bank for this particular topic. So our, our companies come up with a center of excellence on it uh, to try to support it. I think that we took an approach that is a little different because of where we are. So if you think of Philippines, right, it's a, it's, it's a proper pyramid, whereas perhaps Canada is more of an upside down pyramid, right? So we have a lot of young people with not necessarily that much access to work, um, that have to relocate to the cities to be able to find better economic opportunities. So Gen AI for us, and especially in the power sector, became an empowerment tool 
how do you think of human augmentation because of it, right? So one of the things we lack in our power plants, for example, is proper knowledge, right? Proper engineering knowledge on site, on time for the events. So generative AI in that particular context becomes an aiding tool to be able to have the best possible advice even though you may be in Mindanao, even though you may not necessarily be where the access to, to knowledge is, and use it as a way to corroborate whether the maintenance procedure you're about to execute is, is current and is, is um, do I know exactly how to do it, right? Um, in that very same context in other industries, the idea of Gen AI should be to supplement, at least for us, is become to supplement capabilities uh, to be able to execute your role better. And, and also to be able to execute your role from where you live, which is one of the key things for us. We, we're being very focused for next year to start to build more hyper-connected networks. So the ability to have people living in marginalized areas of the world, right? Not having to relocate to a main city to be able to contribute to, to the economy. And in, in the case of power, we, we are working with a, a network called uh, Connected Women out of here in, in the Philippines. We have 100,000 women. And a lot of them live in marginalized societies or situations where they either came out of prison or they don't have access to a job or, or they live somewhere where they're just fishing, right? And and we try to give them access to tools to help us first annotate, but eventually we're going to try to treat them as as human uh, IoT, right? And effectively with Gen AI, you can enhance them so that they can do things like inspection of grid while they're over there, right? And not have to either think of drones or other ways to solve for that problem while it's still facilitating more people coming into the workforce, right? So in, in the way we see Gen AI, we see it more or less on the human empowerment side. And for that reason, we even though we dabble in open source to educate ourselves, we believe that it's very important that you have good algorithmic governance for it. Right, because you need to know that what they've been taught, what they've been told that is right, is not just a representation of what other bad answers are out there, but that are actually a fluid reflection of, of adequate answers, right? And in that sense, it's, it's, it's a lot more important that we do contextual training. So we're gonna start building more our own trainings for it, although we probably assist ourselves still with the, with the large language models. The uh, uniqueness for us is that in the Philippines, we cycle through a lot of languages. So there's English, there's Tagalog, there's Visayas, there's a little bit of Spanish, then there's other languages on top of that. And, and they, they cycle through that on the same sentence sometimes. So now you have to think of ways to contextualize that knowledge or that sequence as a pseudo language, right? That is contextual to where they are in the in in the in the in the island they're in, right? So we have to go down the path of building those models locally with the context, not just for the location, but also for the industry. So we see a, a, a long roadmap uh, to develop that. And in partnership with uh, the existing language innovations, try to find the right path for us to test and apply as you have these innovations happening elsewhere in the world, right? So if you're going to build it yourself, though, but you're saying not go open source because then governance may be an issue or something like that, are you That's then saying building on top of like a uh, what building on top of? Yeah. So so you take the the, the approach that this transformers have this 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 ability to encode. We want to leverage. The difference would then be the application aspect of it. So then we may even have to go by layers, right? Where the the algorithmic governance may end up being in an interpretation layer, right? Not the fact that you're being told this, which could be adequate, but why are you being told this, right? And then first form of algorithmic governance is just that interpretation layer so that you're at least aware that I got it from this document or I got it because of X, right? And, and through constant, you could even think of active learning-like environments where you're saying, oh, I think this is right. Yes, please tell me more about this or do it, continue to tell me about this in the future. Or you know what, I don't think this is right. Look for something else, right? And and, and that transfer learning or that interactive learning helps the person using, engaging with Gen AI, but also helps the Gen AI to become progressively better at the recommendation or at, at the presentment of information. So we I can't say we have a, a final architecture for it, but we have the design principles of how we think this needs to be working. So we've invested a lot on XAI because of this, uh, partially too, because I'm also the head of research. So I'm, I'm trying to bring some of the Maila lenses learned into the way that we're doing things. But we believe that 
that human interaction, that human to machine discourse is really important in our in our ability to deliver. You know, it's interesting. As I mentioned, I, I hosted this O'Reilly uh, Generative AI for Government Summit, and we actually had uh, two of the creators of this uh, system for the Brazilian Court of Accounts. So it's a government system. And what they do is they they uh, use uh, the Azure OpenAI platform, and then they use retrieval augmented generation. So they layer on top of it. Yes. And, and and they have extensions for particular data sets that are particular to them to try to keep it very uh, focused, right? And to, Narrow, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, I, and, uh, and they have additional plans like this too. So there, uh, yeah, there's definitely a path, right? Where, where you can take sort of a base and then put things on top of it or do additional fine tuning through, you know, reinforcement, human human feedback, you know, learning and things like that, right? Yeah. So. And and what we learned is, you know, you have to start in, in in less complex environments, right? Right now we did a Gen AI model for something around legal contracts or simple legal contracts, right? And eventually we want to bring it down to engineering in the plant, right? Because we figure some of the more con uh, the more complex topics are good candidates for this, but you have to progress into it. You have to be able to build the right baseline the right annotations and the the right governance behind the guardrails right behind what constitutes an adequate response right and therefore we see it as a learning program we see gen ai as a learning program where we we're not only teaching the algorithm but we're teaching the users to work with the algorithm and as they both get better at interacting the possibilities for it to be one scaled and two tackle more important or more difficult problems increases, right? So it's, instead of being a one-off kind of implementation and test, we have to plan it more like a program uh, and think of, okay, what are we going to teach the algorithm and the users in the next five years, right? Hopefully that's how we will become be, begin to, to roll it out. Unfortunately, we're, we're almost out of time. We, we've only got a couple of minutes left. <laughs> I would have loved to... Uh, delve into this more more detail because you've got such a terrific background and the fact that you're you. you have the operational side and you have the strategic side and you have the the deep tech side and you're marrying in all and the esg you know doing something that's a backbone um and you think of the medium and long term as well so it's kind of like one individual <laughs> it's just all packed into <laughs> like um, i said i sleep very little <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's such a, it's such a thoughtful way of going about it, and um, there's just so many different ways that we can slice and dice this. But we're down to our last question, and uh, let's do a follow up at some point. But uh, you know, what 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 kind of recommendations do you want to give to the audience? <laughs> the audience is pretty diverse, so. right? So, um, from my experience, we need to understand humans better. That's one thing that we all miss when we focus on algorithms, whether it's for a startup, whether it's for research, whether it's for engineering. Um, AI is the first technology in human civilization history that adapts to humans. And funny enough, as designers of these solutions, we don't know much about how humans interact with technology. We're so used to humans adapting to technology, right? So you have to learn SAP. You have to change the way our 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 land is is shaped and our cities are shaped, just so that you can extract value from the land, for example. That when technology adapts to us, it forces us to be more you know introspective. I think. So I would I would encourage anyone, whether it's a startup, a researcher, or an investor, to really help look into how humans react to cognition enhancement to capabilities improvement to human enhancement altogether really as the better paradigm to design learning algorithms because when you understand not just the the person is going to interact with the algorithm but the impacts that it has it's a lot easier to come up with something that actually works unfortunately sometimes we we dive so much into the the math of what this is actually doing let's say for instance in deep learning and it's fascinating the fact that he arrives at the right answer but very few people understand why he got there right that we kind of forget how it's going to be used and if we're focusing on applying this in the real world 
focusing more on humans and how it enhances their capabilities actually really it really pays off. So funny enough, I, I, I'm a big advocate of, of, of behavioral science, right? Understand people that you're going to engage with that are going to be impacted by this, that are going to be using this more as a design principle of how you build it. Because that to me is where a lot of these, is it going to take my job away, goes away, where these fears of automation come into play, where the fact that we get all this uh, Terminator, you know, media, obviously, uh, some media, uh, inaugurated or, or or motivated, right? Which doesn't really help the solution aspect. of it. So if you make people and understand how people are motivated to, to execute their work and they become part of designing that enhancement of themselves in their role, in their function, you actually have a lot better chance of developing something that would have the real impact you're looking for. So that's a, that I would say that's a practical recommendation for uh, if you really want your startup, your company to achieve success with this, start looking more into the people that are going to use this and their mindset and how they operate and look less a lot uh, on, on the algorithms that you're going to develop. Hmm. You know, it's interesting you bring this up. I, I did a UN event on Friday and and um, they went on UN TV and it was a global event. But um, our session was all about humans, human-centric AI, right? So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. We, I'm a big proponent of what we call symbiotic AI, which is a new tagline, right? We need to find new taglines, of course. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it's exactly that is come up with a better design and, and, and psychological understanding of who you're doing this to as a design principle, how you're going to build it. Because that, the options of building learning algorithms are, are quite vast now, you know, thanks to open source. We couldn't ever keep up with every innovation that's happening in the algorithmic world. So instead, let's just find the guiding principles of what would make it work. And what we've learned so far is there are things that are not very sophisticated algorithmically that have a great impact. And when they have a good impact, people trust it, people support it, the investment comes into it. And, and you know, we, we got to catch up the world to all this great stuff we've been doing the last 10 years, right? And the best way to do it is to start focusing on the people themselves, right? I think that's the biggest, the biggest uh, position that I've, I've, I've or, or insight that I've gotten in the last five years of doing this. So, uh, Louis, thank you for coming in. You have this marvelous background. You've done it all, and you're continuing to contribute in so many different <laughs> ways. I really appreciate you spending the time and sharing your insights with our audience. No, thank you very much for the invitation. I was really happy to, to have a chat. Thank you for listening to the brand called You Videocast and Podcast, a platform that brings you knowledge, experience, and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website, www.tbcy.in, to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for the brand called You.